Good morning and welcome to the Hub City Church. We're so glad you've decided to join us in worship this morning. If you're new to Hub City, we exist to make disciples who believe the gospel, abide in Christ, and obey the word of God. If you'd like to hear more about our vision, or if you're interested in joining one of our serve teams, you can visit our website, thehubcitychurch.org, or just text the word Hub City to 97000 and we'll follow up with you in the next few days. While we break for community groups during the summer, we'd love for you to stay connected through men's and women's groups on Wednesday nights at 6. Beach Baptisms is always an event we look forward to, and we hope you'll make plans to join us for that on August 6 at 4 p.m. at Henderson Beach State Park. We'll have hot dogs and hamburgers, and you can sign up to bring a cider dessert to share on our church app or on our social media pages. It's such an exciting time in the life of our church, and we are so thankful for the growth that the Lord is giving us. To help accommodate those looking for seating during service, it would be super helpful to keep end seats open so our ushers are able to easily find seats for those coming into the service. Kids are always welcome in service, and we have a nursing mother's room with our service streaming live just outside the lobby to the left. Again, we're so glad you're here. Let's worship Jesus together. All right, well, hey, good morning again, and thanks for being here this morning to worship Jesus with us. My name is uh, Tad Anderson, and I am the lead teaching pastor of the Hub City Church, and so uh, once again, we're so glad you're here. Just a couple of announcements before we get into the Word. Um, the, the first thing is, man, pretty cool. Um, I'm kind of, we're totaling, trying to figure out, but I think we have about nine people who want to be baptized um, next Sunday. So yeah, that's incredible. I mean, it's incredible. Um, our, our goal, just so you know, we do have goals as a church. We try to, I mean, we don't never know what God's going to do, um, but our, our goal is just for, for our side of the faithfulness, we, we'd like to see um, 5 to 10 percent um, of, of our church body, you know, like as, as we're growing, be baptized um, each year. And so, man, that's going to be close to 10 percent of our regular adult attendance. That's pretty amazing. So, um, it, it'll be, we'll be doing these beach baptisms next Sunday uh, at Henderson Beach State Park. 4 p.m. is the suggested arrival time. Uh, 5 p.m. is when we will start baptizing. Uh, we'll, we'll plan to have dinner together at 5.30. Uh, the reason that we've set the time so early is due to Destin traffic this time of year and getting through the, the gate at Henderson. If you've uh, ever uh, been down there around that time, you know it can get pretty backed up. And so, um, so yeah, we just want to make sure everybody has plenty of time to get down there and is not surprised by how long it may take them to get down there. We don't want you to miss the baptisms if you'd like to be there for that. Uh, it does cost $5 to park. I didn't say this before, um, but we think it's worth it for the pavilion and the bathrooms and, and, and all of that, okay? Um, here, here's another thing. We need to eat food for dinner while we're there, so um, uh, please bring some if you uh, are willing to do that. 
uh, the church is just going to cover burgers and, and hot dogs and all the necessary things like buns and condiments and cheese and, and plates and, and all of those good things. But um, if you guys would do sides and desserts, that would be amazing. There are sign-up sheets uh, that will be near the connection desk when you leave today. Um, you know, also on Facebook, there's a there should be a form you can click through um, to see to sign up digitally. Um, just tell somebody, like, let us know somehow if you're going to bring food. We would really appreciate that. We're we're trying to you know administrate all that and make sure we have enough for everybody. So let us know if you'd like to uh, pitch in there. Um, the next thing is, uh, every year we do take a break from community groups during the summer because there's just so much uh, traveling and crazy scheduling with kids out of school, but um, shortly after beach baptisms, our plan is to start back up. We don't have an exact Sunday start date yet, but if you've not previously been a part of a community group, uh, will you let us know that you would like to be a part of a community group? Again, uh, we are uh, in a season of growth, and we're so thankful for the Lord's provision. Uh, but we also want to always be diligent to care for all whom the Lord would send to us. And um, we, we can't do that as well as we'd like to if like 60 people wind up in one community group and like 12 wind up in another one, right? It's a little uh, unbalanced. And also, just so you know, maybe you don't know this, our, our church has a lot of kids. Um, and so, you know, some families, you could get like you know, six couples into one community group, and they'd have 24 kids between, um, between them. So that can be somewhat tough to manage. So again, help us out administratively uh, by letting us know if you'd like to jump into community groups here coming up soon. Um, it's going to be a great way for you to get connected to the, uh, the life of the church each week. Um, so we'd really encourage you to that. Um, we'll post, again, a sign-up form on social media. We'll probably have a physical copy here next week. Uh, after we're done accounting for the baptism food, okay? Um, all right, that's all I have by way of announcements. We are uh, going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 again this morning, um, the, the second half of Ephesians from chapters 4 to 6 are about having a, uh, a gospel-informed culture as individuals, families, and churches who are doing life together in Christ. And in the beginning of chapter 4, right out the gate, if you were here for it, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote it, he intros this by saying that as Christians, we should be striving to, quote, walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In other words, um, we should not be content. We should not be content for our faith to be theoretical only. We shouldn't be content for that. Um, we should want to apply our faith in our everyday life, as is clearly uh, intended. And uh, that, that began with our, our, as we've moved through chapter 4, that began with our calling together as the body of Christ, uh, a bunch of individual members who have the gospel in common to unify us. But we also have a variety of spiritual gifts that differentiate us and that serve to mature us as we love and serve one another with those gifts. And uh, now as we get into the next portion of the text in Ephesians 4, Paul is going to transition from elaborating on how we all ought to carry ourselves corporately uh, to how we ought to carry ourselves individually. All right, so let's go ahead and, uh, as always, let's read our passage and then we'll begin our discussion with prayer. We're picking it up in chapter 4, verse 17. It says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, 
in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Father, we thank you as always before all else that while we were yet sinners, you loved us so much that you sent your own son to live and to die for us in order to make us right with you and give us life, new life in him. We always desire for that gospel message to be front and center in everything we do together as Jesus' church, because without it, we know we're not really a church at all. God, my, my prayer for this morning, thus, is that maybe this gospel would become clear for some who have not previously understood it in its fullness. For those of us who have, Lord, that we would praise you for how far you've brought us since we've known Christ, and for all of us, that we would take this reminder to heart today, that the gospel does not only justify us, it sanctifies us. It's the motivation we need to change by putting sin to death in our hearts and striving to conform our daily living progressively more each day into a manner worthy of our calling. We love you, Lord. We pray. All of this in your beautiful name. Amen. One of my favorite commercials of all time is from the early 2000s, and it was a commercial by the Comcast Cable Company. Starts out with a shot of a guy on a cordless phone. He's standing in a kind of like a a den-type room in his house that he's turned into like a man cave Um, And it's got, you know, football memorabilia everywhere. And his team is clearly the Tigers, okay? I say clearly because there are Tiger logos on, on everything, but also because he is in shorts and flip flops, no shirt, and has black tiger stripes all over his body, okay? From from the neck down. And uh, I'm gonna the, the the phone call that he's on goes like this. I'll kind of run through it with you. There's a person on the other end. Sounds like a man of Asian descent. Says hello, and uh, the the guy standing there. He says, "Hey, it's 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 Roger again, uh, but this time I'm calling you on my new Comcast Digital Voice home phone service." The person on the other end says, "I told you last time, tattoos are permanent." <laughs> Roger says, "Well." I, I know what you said before, but then I was talking on my old phone service. So the person says, so? Roger says, well, well, now I'm talking to you on my new Comcast service. The person says, sorry, Roger, you tiger now. 
Roger clearly starting to get flustered. Sorry, I have Comcast Digital Voice, right? And the tagline is, your phone calls won't change. They'll just cost less. Um, <laughs> goes down in history as one of my all-time favorite commercials. I start with this because in Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24, Paul is laying out the process of change in the Christian life. But um, in his fundamental breakdown of how we change, he, he uses some really interesting terminology, okay? Um, he, he does not just say to these Ephesian Christians, he doesn't just say, you know, you used to do bad, bad stuff, um, but now you've you got to start doing good stuff. That's not how he says it, right? Because uh, Christianity, while fairly simple to understand, it is not simplistic like every other world religion that just spells out uh, a list of do's and don'ts that you just work really hard to maintain and thereby achieve a status of good person. That's, that's not how Christianity works. The, the Christian faith is actually, you, you could say, uh, the anti-religion in the sense that uh, Christians are not instructed to work really hard to do things for God so that in the end, he'll love us and accept us. Okay. No, the, the gospel message, if you're like, wait a minute, stay tuned in here. The gospel message is this, that Jesus, the Son of God, came while we were sinners and he loved us first by doing everything perfectly for us. And now, in him, we can know for certain that we are already accepted by God. Right? And then, here's what happens. From that incredible news, we are motivated to live lives that align with and glorify the one who loved and saved us when we were totally unworthy of being loved or saved, right? Um, this is a really crucial nuance that if you don't understand this, you, you don't actually understand the gospel. It's, it's that important that we that we understand this nuance, that, that as believers, we are not working to earn an approved status from God. We're not working to earn an approved status from God. We are, we are working, okay? We are doing things, right? But the reason we're working is to display the status that we have already freely received, from God by faith alone. Is that clear? Yeah. Okay. Uh, th three weeks ago at the start of chapter four, we said, we said it this way, that the Christian walk is really a process of becoming more and more who we've already been made to be in Christ, right? Uh, because uh, our salvation is both already and not yet, okay? We have already been loved, 
We've already been loved. We've already been accepted in Christ. We've already been forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. Our seat, if, we're, if you're a believer, our seat at the Lord's table for the wedding feast of the Lamb in his eternal kingdom is already assigned with our name on it. But we are not yet who we will be when that time comes, right? We're not yet who we will be when that time comes. We still, I mean, I still, right? We still have more sin to repent of, more spiritual maturity to step into, more ministry to give ourselves to, more people to share Christ with, right? And yet all those things are not the ticket to our salvation. They're just the evidence of it. The proof is in the pudding, as they say, right? So um, in all this talk, in our text of putting off the old self and putting on the new self, the, the big principle that we need to understand up front is this, that Christianity is not merely an outward modification of morality, but a radical change of heart-level identity. Okay? Christianity is not merely an outward modification of morality, but a radical change of heart-level identity. Um, you don't become a Christian by starting to be nicer and cussing a little bit less and getting some Christian tattoos, right? Uh, if you have some, cool, so do I. But that's not what makes you a Christian, okay? Just like tattooing your whole body like a tiger doesn't make you a tiger, right? Um, what, what makes you a Christian, what makes you a Christian is a life-changing encounter with God through his word, whereby the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to the truth about Jesus Christ, you repent of your sin, place your faith in him, and then you enter into this lifelong process of becoming an entirely different person with a thoroughly different view of your existence, a, a new identity, if you will, a new identity. This new identity is a disciple or follower of Jesus, a, a son or daughter of God, and heir of God's kingdom, an ambassador for Christ, a member of Christ's body, right? So if, if that radical shift, that, that radical shift of inward identity, if that has happened for you, then Roger, you Christian now, okay? Press, press into it. Press into it. That's what Paul is saying in our text. The, the process for change as a Christian is the process of embracing our new identity by putting on Christ. Okay, So we're going to um, elaborate on that towards the end of our time together. But first, Paul actually begins by explaining what our old life was like as an unbeliever, okay? Um, I had a guy challenge me a while back. He said, preacher, why do you talk about sin so much? I'm a new creation. Talk about that. And um, hopefully you can see that I do it because the Bible does it. 
Um, but if I had to speculate on why Paul does it here, I would venture to say it's because it's helpful to consider the contrast, the contrast of our pre-conversion self and our post-conversion self, right? Because while we are not yet who we will be when our sanctification is complete, there should be a stark difference between our life before Christ and our life in Christ now. Okay? So, here's how Paul describes our old, unbelieving lives. First of all, he says that the life of an unbeliever is blind and numb to God. The life of an unbeliever, the old self, is blind and numb to God. Now, in our text, I'm not sure if you saw it this way. Uh, maybe if you sat and looked at it as long as I did, maybe you would. But, but Paul lays out something like, kind of like levels of lostness, okay, for lack of a better term. He, he says that unbelievers are characterized by a few things, by um, futility of mind, uh, a darkened understanding of their life, uh, and alienation from God due to the ignorance that is in them. But here's the deepest part. He says all that is due to their hardness of heart. Their hardness of heart. Okay? Hardness of heart. That is the deepest reality, the, the primary issue under all of the subsequent manifestations of lostness. It's a heart that is hard toward God. It cannot see or feel or be concerned with the weight and the eminence of an eternal God. Can't be bothered by that, right? That's a hard heart. Um, I, I love the, the old school comedians, one of my favorites, Adam Sandler. Um, in his movie, Mr. Deeds, his character, Longfellow Deeds, has a foot that's severely frostbitten. <laughs> You've seen the movies, you already know what I'm going to say, but it's, it's all black as a result. And, and he lets a guy hit it repeatedly with a fireplace poker to prove that there are no longer any functioning pain receptors in that foot, right? Um, that's funny. What I'm about to say is not. Um, this is what the unbelieving heart is like. This is what the unbelieving heart is like. Dead, unfeeling, completely oblivious to the life of the Spirit. The prophet Ezekiel calls it a heart of stone. Right? And in Proverbs 17, it says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool, which helps us to understand the fact that you cannot forcibly beat genuine spiritual life into a person. You can't hit somebody over the head with a Bible. That's not going to do anything. The, the new birth, conversion, regeneration, having our spiritual eyes opened, whatever you want to call it, is not able to be accomplished with human hands or human willpower. Turning a heart of stone into a heart of flesh is a miracle that only God can do inside of a person. 
So that's the numbness. We also said the hardness of heart is it's not just numb, but it's, it's blind. In Proverbs 4.19, it says the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So uh, this is the idea that, that even though a, a hard-hearted unbeliever, which to be clear, we all were at one point or another. Amen. I was, right? Okay, but the, the, though a, a hard-hearted believer, though they're able to though they're able to see that they encounter difficulty in their life with relationships and money or, or, and so forth, right? What they cannot see is what they're actually stumbling over and that what they're primarily stumbling over is themselves, their own hard-heartedness. They just assume that, you know, that, Maybe, maybe their big problem is, is something else. They, they can't see that their biggest problem is the fact that they have rejected God. And they've rejected his orderly way of living that he's so clearly laid out for them. They're blind. They're, they're in the dark. They can't see it. And I'm not saying that you, you, know, you can't talk to a hard-hearted person. We're called to, right? We're called to preach the gospel to hard-hearted people. So I'm not saying you can't talk to a hard-hearted person about God and then actually engage with you on the subject. Not all hard-hearted people are mean-spirited and aggressive, right? Some of them are really nice. Because here's the thing. Christianity and niceness are not the same thing. Okay? Christianity and niceness are not the same thing. So the problem for unbelievers is they either reject God outright in an atheistic sense, or more common in the Bible Belt, they reject him spiritually by memorizing some kind of religious lingo while pretending like his actual words don't really apply to them and acting like they don't need any adjustments in their way of living. They just see themselves as perfect, regardless of all the evidence to the contrary, because they're spiritually blind, right? So that's the first thing Paul says characterizes the old, unbelieving self without Christ. They, they've got a brick for a heart. They've got a brick for a heart. And so there's no spiritual pulse. You talk about love for Jesus. You talk about humility before God. You talk about desiring to glorify God. Zero beats per minute. Okay? Zero beats per minute. And because of that hard-heartedness... Paul says of unbelievers that they're, they're alienated from the life of God, which we've covered, right? But also, they are darkened in their understanding, and they operate in a state of mental futility, he says. Um, Romans 1 paints an even more vivid and tragic picture of this. Here's what it says in verses 21 through 25. It says, speaking of the unbelievers, For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Get this, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
So in your notes, I've, I've said it this way. The old life of an unbeliever is entrenched in corrupting lies. Okay, it's, it's entrenched in corrupting lies. Now, the, the first and most ultimate lie that every unbeliever ascribes to, whether explicitly or implicitly, is that they don't really need God. That's what they think. They, they don't really need God. That's, that's the lie behind every other corrupting lie. Like from Satan, the serpent in Genesis 1, right? That's the lie that Adam and Eve believed first, and now every unbeliever since gets stuck in that same lie, and they sink down into it like quicksand. And this is evidenced by a manner of living as though they are their own God. Now, here's the thing about this. Again, we're in the Bible Belt. There's not a lot of people who are just like, I don't really need God. I just kind of live like I'm my own God, you know? You don't say that in the South. No one says that. But notice I did not say of the unbeliever that they don't believe in God. I didn't say they don't believe in God. Now, some unbelievers, of course, claim to not believe in God, and they would even tell you that. And so they're entrenched in all of the godless lies of our culture that we talked about last week. But Stay with me because I'm going to say something that might sound counterintuitive, okay? Many unbelievers believe in God. Many unbelievers believe in God. Friends, please have a category for this in your minds because the Bible, Jesus, and Paul have a category for this. Unbelievers, non-believers who say that they are believers. Unbelievers who know stuff about the Bible. Unbelievers who go to church. Right? All of that can be true about a person, and they can still be entrenched in lies. The way the prophets speak about this is by saying, there are people who honor God with their lips while their hearts are far from him. Right now, I know I can see the faces. I know this might seem a, a little disorienting, right? Like unbelievers who believe in God and even sort of look like it and talk like it. Um, maybe this will help. Here's the difference: though they believe in God or say that they believe in God, they don't really see their need for Him, and so they continue to live not under God's authority but under their own authority, right? They spend their money however they feel like. They spend all their time doing whatever it is they want to do. They make their own rules for sex and, and marriage and morality, career. None of it has to do with God. It's just whatever they want 24-7. They say they believe in God, but their life says they don't believe in God. Their mouth says they believe in God, but their life says they don't. How, how can this be possible? Well, in Romans 1, it says, their belief in God, it, it doesn't go beyond mental agreement, right? They believe in God, but they don't worship God as God. They don't worship God as God. So 
Unbelievers, as I said, they, they may be nice people. They may be incredibly smart people. They may, may be very successful people in their field of work. They, they might, in the world's eyes, seem to have it all together. They may even have a form of, of religion. But if you could, here's the thing you can't do, but if you could do, right? If you could see inside their mind, you would not find a throne with Jesus on it. In its place, you'd find a shrine to self. You'd find a shrine to self. And because they don't have the supreme truth about God and the lordship of Christ reigning over their minds, as smart as they may be, our text says, right, all their knowing is really futile. It's futile. They're caught up and concerned with all the cares of the world. Jesus... The Lord of life knocks on the door of their heart and they treat him like a solar panel salesman. Sorry if you sell solar panels. <laughs> I'm looking through the blinds trying to see. Like, you know, <laughs> looking on the Nest camera. Uh, right? it, it's like Jesus is like, hey, I, I'd really like to have a relationship with you. I'd really like to have a relationship with you. And they say, oh, sorry, I have a work thing. Sorry. Sorry, I I have a wife I have to appease. Oh, well, you know, I have some land or a boat or a house or a car or a lot of those things that, that I think is really the most important thing on my plate right now. Sorry, Jesus. So they say they believe in God, and yet when God calls to them, they're so preoccupied with the trivial stuff of their temporal life that they turn him away. They turn him away. This is entrenched in lies. This is like Bible Belt version of entrenched in lies, okay? They probably vote conservative, okay? Republican. But they believe the lie that they don't really need God. And their life shows it. The lie that they can live like they're their own God. The lie that the comforts and the pleasures of this life are more important than pursuing a genuine relationship with Christ. Right? And finally, Paul says, in this portrait of the old unbelieving self, he says, they have become callous. And they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so here's how I put this in your notes. Um, Unbelievers are restlessly searching for lasting pleasure and contentment where it can never be found. Right? Unbelievers, this was my life, friends. This is my life before Christ. That's how I you know, understand it so well, okay? So, restlessly searching for lasting pleasure and contentment where it can never be found. In other words, in line with their hard-heartedness and their being entrenched in lies, they look for goodness and satisfaction apart from God. When the truth is, God is the creator of goodness and satisfaction, And we cannot have it in a truly fulfilling way apart from him. Okay. 
satisfaction and fulfillment of the soul that lasts for longer than a season or a day or a few minutes. It can only come from a right relationship with God. In Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon, the richest man who ever lived, he did an experiment to to prove this. I'd like to read it to you. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is Solomon speaking. He says, I said in my heart, so he's talking to himself, I I said in my heart, come now, heart, (laughs) I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. How much money did this guy have? Like I I made myself pools. There's an S on that, okay? Like pools. I want a pool. Yeah, more than one pool, right? From which to water the forest of growing trees that I planted, right? I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and and, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He's saying, (laughs) listen, he's saying, I had more money, More sex, more entertainment, more parties, more good food, more vacations, more everything than you can accumulate for yourself. If I wanted to do it, I did it. If I wanted to see it, I saw it. If I wanted to buy it, I bought it. And at the end, he says, the result was not that I felt more fulfilled And more content than you can imagine, he says, I actually felt more empty than you can imagine, and I longed for something more than everything. Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Solomon says, yeah, I felt that. I felt that. He had the world at his fingertips. And yet there still seemed to be something deeper and elusive that even all the riches and comforts and pleasures of the world could not fill up for him, right? And the old life of an unbeliever is characterized by trying to do the Solomon experiment with a vastly less impressive budget, okay? That's like the life, the old life of the unbeliever. That's why some people... They waste hours upon hours looking at explicit image after explicit image after explicit image on the internet, right? Sexual sin. It's why some people drink and drink and drink and drink until they're drunk and eat and eat 
and eat and habitually overeat. It's why some people buy new thing after new thing after new thing after new thing until they're entrenched in materialism. It's why some people seem to jump from fad to fad to hobby to hobby to expert on this to expert on that. It's why some people post picture of themselves after picture of themselves after picture of themselves after picture of themselves on social media. It's because as unbelievers, we're hard, hard-hearted, entrenched in lies, and restlessly searching for lasting pleasure and contentment where it can't ever be found. Now, that's a pretty depressing picture, isn't it? If you're a believer, it's supposed to be, okay? Um, <clears throat> and Paul says, right, he paints that picture, and he says, so get out of that old place. Get out of there. Get out of that empty, deceived pattern of living that you were in before you knew Christ. You're new now. Take off the old and put on the new. And then he goes on to lay out the new life of a believer, which should be a much happier portion of this sermon. So um, he says, um, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So this language of putting off and putting on in this passage and in the other places where it's used, it reads like, like stripping off old, dirty clothes and putting on new, fresh, clean clothes, okay? And, and as we move through the remainder of this chapter, Paul is going to give much more specific application of this. But as we wrap up today, here are three things I think we need to understand about the concept in general. First of all, and this is kind of overarching for the other two I'll read. First of all, the new life of a believer is progressively transformed by hearing and obeying Jesus. Okay? The new life of a believer is progressively transformed by hearing and obeying Jesus. So speaking of the old way of unbelieving life, the old self, he says, um, that's not the way that you learned Christ and the truth that's in Jesus. He says, you should be being renewed in the spirit of your mind. So um, the life of someone who is a new creation in Christ should have this initial moment of realization when they start to grasp the gospel and what it really means to be a Christian, where they think, man, like everything I thought I knew was a lie, right? Because before Christ, they were entrenched in lies. That realization should happen. But now... Instead of being blind and numb to God, instead of living like they are their own God, they love God, and they want to be near God, and they want to hear God. So as they, as they uh, daily consider the teachings of Jesus and his apostles from the New Testament, the word of God, they're, they're trying to soak it up. They're trying to soak it up. Jesus is no longer just the God that they nominally claim to believe in for two hours on Sunday. He's the God who they worship and desire to submit to in everything all week long. And the gospel accounts 
one simple thing you see is that when Jesus makes disciples, they are the people who it literally says, they leave everything. They leave everything behind, and they follow Jesus around wherever he goes, right? And while we don't have Jesus here with us in bodily form now, we do have his teachings. And in that sense, we follow him wherever his words lead us. Whatever his words might mean for us, whatever they might change about us. Like Peter, we say to Jesus, where else would we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life, right? Friends, before I move on, I just want to say this it's just as plainly as I can. If you will not read your Bible, God's word to you, God has given his words to you in the Bible. And so if, if you will not read your Bible, then you will not be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you will not put on the new self. Okay? Um, if you want to be transformed by hearing and obeying Jesus, then first, hear Jesus. <laughs> That's not rocket science, right? Like, you want to be transformed, then then go listen to what Jesus has to say. Go to the Word and read. That's how you hear Jesus. That's how you... It's, it's not just me. I'm not the only one that can hear Him, right? Go to the Word and ask the Lord what He would have you to do. And He will. He'll tell you. Sometimes He might tell you there's a sin you need to confess. Sometimes there's a promise you need to believe. Other times... There's an attitude that needs to be changed. Maybe there's an explicit command that you need to go and do. Perhaps there's an example for you to follow. Maybe there's a, a prayer for you to pray, an error for you to avoid, a truth for you to wrestle with and adopt or just praise God for. That's all in the Bible. Listening to my sermon is not enough for you to be transformed. Listening to my sermons is not enough for you to be transformed. I hope that you are encouraged and strengthened and convicted by my teaching when necessary. But dear Christian, you need to go to the source for yourself. Go to the source for yourself. Go to Jesus yourself. Go to the word of God yourself. You could leave here today. Maybe some will. I hope not. That you can leave here today and never listen to another word that I say. I'd be sad if you did that, but but you would be just fine. You'd be just fine if you never heard another word I said. But if you don't listen to Jesus' words, you'll die. You'll die. Because only Jesus' words are life. Okay? In Matthew 7, 24, Jesus says it this way. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. This is the foundation, pun intended, okay, of putting on the, the new self, progressive transformation as we hear and obey Jesus. Moving away from that old house, that was built on sand and rebuilding our new house, our new life, our new self on the solid ground 
of Jesus' teaching. In Colossians uh, 3, it's very similar to verse 24 of our text. It says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So you see, putting on the new self is putting on Christ. It's putting on Christ-likeness. It's thinking about every category of your life and considering how would I do this in the way that Christ would have me to do it? How would I do this in the way that Christ would have me to do it? In your notes, I said it like this. I said it's this ongoing adoption of righteous gospel-centered living. The ongoing adoption of righteous gospel-centered living. Concerning, for instance, finances. Josh talked about this and did a great job where, where we used to view ourselves as the earner and the, the sole owner of all that we made for ourselves. You know, we, we used money in selfish ways, striving to make it go as far as it possibly could for our own comfort and our own entertainment. But now the gospel informs us that God is actually the owner of all resources and he actually owns us too. He created us and he even redeemed us. And so whatever we have comes from him and should be stewarded with him in mind. Are we living to worship money and what money can do for us? Or are we now living to worship God? And yes, provide for our family, but also serve others and and fuel the redemptive mission that God has given us. A righteous, gospel-centered mindset says we should strive to adopt the latter as our renewed way of living. I'm not going to continue fleshing out other categories um, of this, like marriage or parenting, because Paul is going to get to all of that later on in Ephesians. But, But hopefully you get the point that Jesus will transform everything about us, and he does it from the inside out. As love for the gospel grows inside of us, we begin to consider how it should speak to and make every facet of life new. So, ongoing adoption of righteous gospel-centered living, and on the other side of that coin, ongoing abandonment of sinful, ignorant living. Ongoing abandonment of sinful, ignorant living. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So, in the same way, that we're going to be trying to constantly conform to this new way of Christ-informed living, we are going to realize as we go that we're going to need to drop things from our old way of living and leave them behind. Okay, Maybe a certain group of people we were hanging out with that was having more negative influence on us than we were having positive influence on them. Maybe certain music artists that spout a lot of ungodly, anti-gospel language. Maybe certain media or books that we were consuming that contain a lot of inappropriate content. Maybe certain news outlets that we were subscribing to, but that were getting us stirred up about things that we should not be stirred up about, right? Maybe there's, maybe there's something and we didn't realize that we were still leaning on occasionally that's not Jesus, medicating our negative emotions in life with food, alcohol, sex. Maybe it's a, a good thing, but the way we're going 
uh, about it, the way we're using it is as though it's a God thing, right? Whatever the things might be that are no longer profitable, and certainly the things that are sinful or that need or that lead to sinful thoughts or actions on our part, things that are attached to our former ignorance, putting off the old self is the ongoing process of cutting those things loose. Cut them loose. Throwing them overboard so that they are not encumbering our walk with the Lord any longer. I don't know what that might be for you, each of you, individually, but... I'm willing to bet the Holy Spirit knows, right? And if you're bold enough to ask him, he'll bring it to mind. What things, Lord, do I need to leave behind? What things do I need to cut loose? What things are making it harder for me to follow Jesus? He'll tell you. He'll tell you. C.S. Lewis said, if conversion to Christianity makes no improvement in a man's outward actions. If he continues to be just as snobbish or spiteful or envious or ambitious as he was before, then I think we must suspect that his conversion was largely imaginary. Church, our our work in conforming to Christ's likeness is not the thing that we must do in order to be loved and approved and saved by God. right? That's not the thing that we have to do to be saved. That that would be a works-based mindset that doesn't understand grace. However, if we have truly embraced our new identity in Christ, it will become outwardly evident. It will become outwardly evident as we are progressively transformed by the gospel. So I would leave you today with this simple question to consider. Have you changed? And are you changing? (laughs) Have you changed and are you changing? Is this process of putting on the new self and putting off the old self, is this something that sounds familiar to you because you're actively doing it? If so, man... (laughs) Praise God. Praise God. Keep keep it up, right? This is a lifelong endeavor, so keep it up. But if you realize today that this process of putting off the old and putting on the new seems strangely absent in your life, maybe the miracle of new birth hasn't taken place for you yet before now. But maybe, friend, maybe today is the day that you realize you want to repent of your, of your sin and receive the grace, mercy, and forgiveness that only Christ offers and begin a new life of following him and putting him on every day. If that's you, come on. Come on. You're in the right place. Right, You're welcome to join the, the nine other people next week at Beach Baptisms who have said the exact same thing. So if that's you, come on. We'd love to talk with you more about that. I'm going to pray and then come talk to us after the service if you'd like to. All right. Jesus, we love you.
God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you even for the, for the difficult parts of your word, for the challenging parts of your word. God, as I read this and studied this for myself, God, it was, it was a grievous thing to remember my life as an unbeliever. But Father, I praise you for how you rescued me by your grace and showed me that there was nothing I could do to be saved myself, but that Jesus had already done it all. And I just needed to trust him. I thank you for that. Thank you for that gospel. I pray that that gospel would be loved and cherished and understood well in this body of believers. Would we not be gospel ignorant people, but would we strive to understand this gospel that we say we're building our lives on, Father? And as we understand it and as we cherish it, as we treasure it more and more, would we be people who put it on, take off the old and put on the new. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.